I hope this works. Thank you very much. I'm very proud, glad to be here. I hope you will not be too disappointed and I cannot control myself. I want to start with a reference to what just happened here, that problem of you are not allowed to sit on the <laughs> floor and so on. Uh, you know, here I've written a lot about it, namely here we have an example, I think, of how ideology functions at everyday level. You got an order, okay, a friendly order, advice, but an order. So what do you do? I think you shouldn't even have protested. Basically, what I would have done is to say, yeah, of course, horrible, one shouldn't uh, sit on the floor there, and then you do nothing. You just <laughs> go on sitting there. No? Uh, what I'm, the reason I'm saying this, now much more serious, is that what intrigues me already for over two, three decades is how uh, this ambiguity of commandments or permissions is, I think, absolutely central for the functioning of ideology at the everyday level. On the one hand, we get many commandments, or rather prohibitions, but prohibitions which are in a way made to be violated. Like society prohibits something, but if you really obey, follow it, you are an idiot. The true message is do it, but discreetly, no? But then there is an opposite, even more interesting phenomenon, which is you are allowed to do something, even solicited to do it, on condition that you don't do it, you know. You are, as it were, you are given a freedom to do something on condition that you don't use that freedom. Uh, in other words, and this is what I want to share with you because I think that uh, this is the authoritarian dimension hidden in, but nonetheless, sustaining our permissive societies. Now, things are permitted, but you should know how to read between the lines and know is this really, uh, is this, uh, uh, really permitted or not, and so on and so on. Which is why, and Kafka knew this very well, uh, especially in our societies, permissive societies, I think, uh, it's not only that certain things are de facto prohibited, but to pronounce publicly the prohibition is itself prohibited. Uh, let me use, maybe you know it from one of the books, a standard example from communism, but then I will, like, I will use another example from our actual lives. Uh, I remember I read this somewhere in the history of Stalinism. This would be the scene. Let us say it's a beautiful dream. That we are in 35-6 in Moscow. You are the central committee. I am Stalin. Okay. <laughs> I finish my speech. You applaud. Then there is a debate. One of you, let's say you, Matthew, is stupid enough to stand up and start, you start to criticize me openly. No, no, Comrade Stalin is wrong, and so on and so on. Okay, 
We know what would have happened. The day after, the big question would have been, who saw you alive? Who was the last to see you alive? But now I'm more evil and very serious at the same time. Let's imagine that you, for example, would then stand up and start to shout at him. How dare you criticize Comrade Stalin? Aren't you aware that we don't do this in Soviet Union? You would disappear even faster. You see the paradox. It wasn't only prohibited to criticize the authorities, but this prohibition itself was prohibited. You were not allowed to, as it were, to pronounce it publicly. You had to pretend to act as if we can do it, but we just don't do it because Comrade Stalin is really a great leader, whatever, whatever. Uh, I claim that something quite similar, I'm sorry, I will be retelling an old joke, I hope at least not all of you don't know it, happens often even in our daily lives. This is the example I like to use because it happened to me, to my sons, but I didn't do it to them. Uh, again, imagine it's Sunday afternoon, you are a small boy or girl, and your father wants you to visit grandmother. If your father is a traditional authoritarian father, he will do something which I consider totally normal and uh, benevolent, it will not uh, hurt you in any way. He shouts at you a little bit, in the sense of, I don't know how you feel, it's your duty to visit grandmother and behave nicely there. That's good, I think. In the sense that, uh, you, you will, of course, resist it, but precisely this resistance will make you even more rebel and so on. But now let's imagine a much more disgusting image of postmodern permissive father. What would he have told you in the same? He would have told you something like this. Uh, uh, you know how much your grandmother loves you, but nonetheless, I want you to visit her only if you want to. <laughs> now, you see what's the trick here. Apparently, he's giving you the freedom of choice. But the message between the lines, it's a much harsher one than the one of the traditional authoritarian father. The message if, is not only you have to visit your grandmother, uh, but you have to like it. You have to want to visit her. And I, again, I think that Often, quite often, beneath apparent permissivity, you have this kind of a uh, double hidden injunction. And okay, we can go on into this everyday ideology of how, again, things... And my point, to avoid a misunderstanding, is not simply that this is uh, a kind of a hidden totalitarian dimension. I think that, in a way, Every symbolic order needs this kind of ambiguity. Like, on the one hand, again, prohibitions which are precisely not to be taken seriously. And, on the other hand, permissions which are also not to be taken, not to be taken seriously. Uh, uh, I developed this in an old book of mine. I'm really sorry we don't have a clip then I will start to do my proper work. Because this is, I think, 
the best example of ideology in Hollywood. I would like to develop it to you. Maybe again, I'm sorry you know the example. I hope you all saw the mega classic uh, Michael Curtis, Casablanca. You know the scene which I think it's the best introduction into Hollywood ideology that I can imagine. Two-thirds into the film, in the middle of the night, uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman comes to Rick's Café, goes on the, to the second floor up to meet uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart there, and, okay, she wants to get the famous uh, visas for, for, uh, uh, for, for the flight to Lisbon to Port and so on. So the point is that they have a lover's fight, and uh, show this usual noir, cynical uh, uh, dialogue, you know, she pulls a gun at him and he says, go on, shoot me, you will be doing me a favor, all that noir style. <laughs> then they embrace, and you have, of course, uh, fade out. And for two seconds and a half, I think, you see the tower of the Casablanca airport, the light there circling around, and then we return to the same room. Ingrid Berman and Humphrey Ward, the same conversation goes on. And, uh, of course, the big question here is, did they do it or not? That is to say, <laughs> is, this, is this two seconds and a half just a stand-in for half an hour or whatever, where they made love, or is just the real time? Now, that's the beauty of the film. It's not so much ambiguous as the film gives you two series of opposite signals. On the one hand, there is a whole series of signals that they did do it, that they did it. First, we all know in classical Hollywood, if a couple embraces and you have a small fade out, it functions as a signal that they do it. Second thing, I think that after camera retur scene returns to them, you see them smoking a cigarette. That's, again, no, no, you, it's incredibly how Hollywood was classified. If you see a couple smoking a cigarette, it means they just finished uh, making love and so on. You know that saying, what is the second and the third most pleasurable thing in the world? The drink before and the smoke after or whatever. It was, and not to mention even how that phallic tower can be read as kind of a sexual symbol. So again, we have signs that they did it. At the same time, we get a whole series of signs that they didn't do it. They are tightly dressed, the same conversation seems to go on. So. How does this scene really function? The British film theorist Richard Maltby wrote a wonderful text on this scene, where he demonstrates how the message of the movie is precisely, fully, consciously contradictory. It is as if the movie is addressing you, the spectator, in this way. We live under the conditions of censorship. So I have to, I have to provide to you as it were, a safe cover, so that imagine yourself watching the movie and some kind of moral agency asks you, but what are you watch watching? And you can say, nothing, you see, they just have a conversation. But once you can be covered, as it were, absolved, then at the same time, the movie consciously 
plant gives you the whole set of elements how to imagine all the horrors of what they were doing and so on and so on. And what is crucial here to bear in mind is that ideology is not just the standard Hays code moralistic ideology which prohibits showing the sex act and so on. I claim that what is absolutely crucial is that ideology is both dimensions together. Ideology is this innocent appearance, they didn't do it, they just talk, but at the same time this underground, beneath surface, message of you can imagine all you want and so on and so on. Both elements are needed for an ideology to function. All these secret, obscene dreams, apparently subversive dreams, don't undermine ideology, they sustain it. Okay, but I've written <coughs> enough about it, this was just an introductory uh, <coughs> remark, let me go to the topic, end of the world. Uh, <laughs> today, why is it today, maybe we are in some sense approaching the end of the world, because less and less we even need these two levels, they are collapsing into one. What do I mean by this? I've written enough in my books on this general topic. I am not a partisan of that Maya prophecy 2012. But I think that if you analyze today's social, ideological, political situation of our human universe, you can see that we are at multiple levels approaching a certain limit in the sense that it cannot go on indefinitely the way it goes like ecology, we cannot go on exploiting nature the way we do it, uh, intellectual property, it's absolutely clear that with all these possibilities of copying, downloading, and so on and so on, the idea of private property in intellectual matters is becoming more and more meaningless, and I think this will undermine slowly capitalist logic, even from within, then, Biogenetics, what does it mean for our freedom and so on? Then, new forms of apartheid and so on. More and more people living in slums or excluded. So I don't want to repeat all this that I already did. I want nonetheless to present you something at least basically new. I want to tell you, present here some of the signs of this dimension the, of the end of the world in the sense that we are approaching, there is on the horizon, a certain zero level where things reach a limit. So let me begin with a film that I know already for four or five years because the director, who is my friend, was kind enough to send me uh, a copy. Uh, the premiere of the film was, I think, uh, was, I think, uh, not a premiere, but it was shown a month ago here at Toronto Festival. If some of you were lucky enough to see it, if not, please go and see it. It's maybe one of the most morally depressing films that I've seen. <laughs> it's called The Art of Killing, made by a Danish documentary filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. It was shot in the last years in Indonesia, but they needed years to, so that it's possible 
to show it in public because, of course, lives were threatened and so on. You will immediately see why. This film, shot in Medan, Indonesia, mostly in 2007, reports on a case of obscenity which reaches to the extreme. Uh, there is in Indonesia, all this is real, it's a documentary, a group of murderous gang members and members of the military, uh, Anwar Congo and some of his friends, this is an Indonesian now politician and officer, who in the mid, in 1966, you remember when there was a civil war, first the attempted communist coup d'etat, then the anti-communist Suharto regime uh, uh, did strike back and around, the idea is that around two and a half million of people, mostly Chinese, allegedly communists, were slaughtered. Uh, this group, Anwar Congo and his friends, organized at that time, in 66, a murderous gang. They were serially uh, uh, raping, torturing, killing thousands of people. Now comes the... They were not only ready, but they even paid Oppenheimer, they didn't know what he will do with it, to do a film on this. And they, without any shame, that's so depressing, they openly display stage, show, talk about, show some photos, how they were killing, murdering, raping, torturing, and so on. And the high point of obscenity, for me at least, is a scene when, on a local TV show, in October 2007, TV show on Indonesian state TV, this group presented itself, and it's horrible, it's like, you know, a couple of hundred people, public talk with them, and a nice lady, moderator, and for example, this guy, Anwar Congo, I mean, I, you have to see it to believe your eyes and ears. For example, asks, the lady moderator asks Anwar Congo, tell me, what was your standard procedure for raping ladies? He said, well, it was a problem because they kick back and so on, but finally we found a solution. You need two men, and the lady should be on a low table. One man puts a wire around her throat and half is half strangling her, keeping her down, so it's easier to rape her in this way. And then it goes on. He answers, what is the most practical way to torture men, how you cut off his balls, makes, you make him swallow the balls, and it's just a TV talk show. After he explains this mode of torturing, the moderator says, look how inventive these guys are. One big applause for Mr. Anwar and so on. And they all applaud and so on and so on. I mean, it's absolutely breathtaking. But uh, and even so, again, you have a group of people who right-wing murderous thugs who even don't have this, let's call it, minimum of decency that even the Nazis had. You know, you know what Heinrich Himmler said in that famous speech in Posen, Poznan, in '43. This was a speech to SS officers, and he was giving them lessons on how to do the Holocaust, and he was telling them, unfortunately, 
your activity will have to remain a secret, an empty page in history books, but it will nonetheless be the most glorious chapter of German history. But you see, they at least treated it as a private dirty secret. You know, this is the typical right-wing logic in the sense of a true patriot is not just the one who is ready to die for his country, but the one who is ready to lose his soul for his country, to do horrible things. This true hero is ready to do crimes for his country. So here it's not even that. They simply publicly boast about it all. And even more, then they explain how they did it. They explained that before they become killers, they were in love with Hollywood film noir mostly, Humphrey Bogart, all that. So they imagined themselves as noir detective, Humphrey Bogart, whoever. Uh, they imagined as being a Hollywood noir hero when they were doing their terrifying acts. This was their imaginary. Now we can do a lot here. I don't have time to go into it, about how, how do you put it, the use of poetry in ethnic cleansing. This is my old thesis, and I was once almost beaten in my own country by some poets who didn't like the idea. My formula was no ethnic cleansing without poetry. You always need a poet to avoid a misunderstanding. I'm not saying all poets are like that. There are mega great poets. All I'm saying is that I'm a little bit tired as a philosopher to listen for decades, you know, this idea, philosophers with their notion of totality, total rationalism, laid the foundation for totalitarianism and so on, where poets are at least as guilty as we are. The idea, my formula was no ethnic cleansing without poetry. You always need a poet to avoid a misunderstanding. I'm not saying all poets are like that. <laughs> there are mega great poets. All I'm saying is that I'm a little bit tired as a philosopher to listen for decades, you know, this idea, philosophers with their notion of totality, total rationalism, laid the foundation for totalitarianism and so on, where Poets are at least as guilty as we are. Why? It's very simple, my idea here. Uh, we are basically half-decent people. If I were to be ordered, let me take, again, sorry, somebody has to suffer. <laughs> if somebody were to tell me, pick a take a knife and pick your eyes out, well, unfortunately, I would have some problems to do it. So you need some strong, quasi-religious, mythic narrative which serves as a screen enabling you to do it. So that then, through this narrative, I no longer perceive myself just as a brutal torturer, but something who is doing necessary, although cruel things, on behalf of some sacred cause, nation, and so on and so on. You need... You need something like poetry. And it would be very nice to go through all ethnic cleansing cases that we know. I, of course, began in my own country, ex-Yugoslavia, and discovered it's not only Radovan Karadzic, the leader of Bosnian Serbs who is now in Hague. All other post-Yugoslav nations had 
their own poets who, as it were, with beautiful national myths laid the foundations uh, for it. Uh, no, what, uh, what interests me is, to put it in Lacanian terms of Jacques Lacan, the status of big other, big other in the sense of the public symbolic order, the unwritten or written rules which determine what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. Another paradox, I want to argue here for a good use of dogmaticism. I think that I'm totally in ethical matters for dogmaticism. In what sense? Let's take rape. Sorry, but I wouldn't like to live in a society where you, have, you would have to argue all the time against rape. I would like to live in a society where the fact that rape is unacceptable is simply part of our substance. It's automatically assumed so that if somebody plays this, we all know them, stupid, tasteless games. Oh, but women really enjoy it. They are not, don't, don't, uh, not ready to admit. You don't even feel the need to, to argue against. The guy just appears as a weird jerk, eccentric, stupid, or whatever. I claim the moment you have to reason, we are already lost. So this is, no, let me give you an example here. That's what terrified me with Ronald Reagan. I remember, you are probably most of you too, too, too young for this. Uh, once Reagan was accused, Ronald Reagan, that his, uh, some of his friends, that he has many friends who are Holocaust deniers. And he said something which was, I think, quite funny, but in a terrifying way. Namely, he read, no, it's not true that I have any sympathy for Holocaust denial. Whenever at my dinner table somebody denies Holocaust, I always insist, no, this is not true, there was a Holocaust. Well, the question is, okay, but what kind of friends did he have if he had all the time to argue that there was a Holocaust, you know? So, you see my point. My point is, and here I see that we are approaching, as it were, uh, if you want, uh, 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 the end of the world. My point is that, isn't, what is happening there in Indonesia? And let me be very clear here. I don't want to play any of the two easy games, either to blame simply global capitalism, like Indonesians are good ethical guys, who were just confused by universal capitalism, were thrown out of their ethical, ethical substance and can act like this, put the blame just on the developed West. But I also don't accept, of course, the opposite Western racist version, you know, like, ooh, primitive Indonesians, they don't have any real ethics. No, I think uh, we, first, the phenomenon, as I will try to show soon, is getting much more universal than it may appear. This kind of, a, let's call it, disintegration of the big other, in the very naive, forget about Jacques Lacan here, sense of automatic reliance or on certain basic dogmas. Why not? And I think progress can be measured precisely by the level of dogmatism, in the sense that if there are 
many ethical dogmas which, makes, which make rape simply unacceptable, nonsensical, which make, uh, which make uh, I don't know, racism nonsensical and so on and so on. That's one of the few signs of progress. So, uh, again, the question is what is happening with the social body that something like that is acceptable? You see my point. I'm not worried about Anwar Congo and those guys. They are just scum, whatever they are. What worries me is what kind of society it is where it is acceptable to talk about this, boast about this in public. And here things are more complex than it may appear. Because, uh, let me give you another example. Now I will go through a couple of uh, examples here. Uh, 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 some two decades ago, I think, there was a well-known scandal in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, across the river from Manhattan in New York, where uh, a woman was slowly beaten, tortured, and killed uh, uh, at a courtyard in the middle of uh, housing development, and it was later established that at least 70 people were watching this from their windows. None of them called the police. And what is depressing is that, you know, it's not that they would have to identify themselves and then be afraid that the guy would come and also beat them. It could have been done totally anonymously. No one did it. Okay, this was read as an example of moral decadence, disintegration of ordinary people in the United States. No, I think it's something more ambiguous that happened here. Because when some sociologists looked into it more in detail, they discovered that all people had the same reaction. Namely, I thought someone else will do it. It's just that they relied, everyone relied on someone else. And uh, the interesting thing is that I think someone told me that they tried to do some kind of experiment where they tested this. Namely, staged artificially, of course, a situation where the guy, for example, it was more a lonely house, who was observing this, knew well that he is the only one who is observing it. And in that case, almost all of them did call, did call the uh, police. What I, want, uh, what I want to say here is that uh, uh, how are we nonetheless to interpret what the two examples nonetheless share? Indonesian example and Brooklyn example, this, let's call it naively, growing indifference, I don't care or another one will do it, this reluctance to ethically engage yourself. Uh, the usual thing to say is to refer to egotism. You know, this is the usual Catholic or generally religious strategy. Oh, in our era of hedonist egotism, nobody cares for the common good, and so on and so on. Well, I'm totally opposed to this reading. Uh, here I want to refer to Walter Benjamin, 
who already said that capitalism is a religious phenomenon. And the way I read this is in a very naive way. Look at an ideal capitalist, ideal type, I mean. I know some of them, fanatical businessmen. Well, all I can tell you is, if ever I encounter a non-hedonist, a non-egotist guy, it's a totally dedicated capitalist. My God, a proper capitalist is ready, I don't know, to ruin his family life, practically not to sleep, work nine, night and day, just that. There is circulation of, and expansion of capital. It's not capitalists are not hedonist egotists. They are, on the contrary, extremely dedicated to some perverted, but none perverted quasi-ethical cause. You know, you have a cause, capital has to circulate, and basically you don't care. I ruin nature, I ruin my life. Doesn't matter, it has to function. This is why I claim that uh, we don't need to fight for ecology in some stupid moralistic way, like usually people say, oh, we think only in short terms, what about our uh, children, and so on and so on. No, uh, the problem is not that we are too egotist today. The problem is that if we try to rehabilitate the term egotism in a proper way of rational interest in your own good, then I claim paradoxically in our consumerist society of global capitalism, it's maybe more difficult than ever to be a real egotist. Because on the one hand, again, as a capitalist you are not egotist. On the other hand, even the way commodities function more and more, they don't function in an egotist way. The deepest appeal of commodities is anti-egotism. What do I mean by this? Another sign for me of the end of the world. Did you read this now, a month, a little bit over a month ago, in August 2012? Uh, media reported that from December of this year, tobacco companies in Australia will no longer be allowed to display their dis distinctive colors, brand designs, and logos on cigarette packs. To make smoking as unglamorous as possible, the packs of cigarettes will come in uniformly drab shade of olive, and on the, it's no, it will be without logo, just a cigarette, this, and apart from information that this is a cigarette, you will get Sorry, it will not, I just have here. You will get a big photo, extremely disgusting, like of, 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 of eye getting blind, of, of, uh, of your lungs open, all black, of an impotent penis, whatever. Absolutely disgusting. The idea is, of course, to make people, to stop, it's obvious the idea. But I claim, although, okay, People may think this is no longer a commodity universe because there is no logo and so on and so on. There is no longer commodity aesthetics. It's on the contrary. The package of the product openly, graphically draws attention to the dangerous and harm qualities of its product. Is this still 
than commodity logic. I claim it is and maybe even the most efficient one. This idea came to me in Germany when I saw already years ago there a wonderful, in a terrifying sense, a, a poster for cigarettes. It wasn't Marlboro, but they imitated that famous cowboy. Maybe it was like this. Uh, uh, it was uh, on a poster, the usual cowboy, and on the bottom, of course, that obligatory obligatory statement, smoking is dangerous for your health. Uh, but the cowboy is pointing with his hand, with his fingers, towards that statement, and the message was, in German, jetzt erst rechts. Now it's for the real. And I think it was a wonderful male chauvinist message. It was, are you a coward? If you are a true man, now that you know that it's dangerous, now you will do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and uh, uh, I think that uh, from the very beginning, consumerism works like this. I don't think we really care about all that bullshit, oh, it has so much vitamins, so much this, so much that. <coughs> in, <coughs> if I may call it in this obscene way, in authentic consumerism, there is always, I think, this excess of it's dangerous, but that's why I want to do it. In, uh, even in, of course, this is not consumerism, but even in some traditional societies, in a much more, if you think, I doubt, authentic way, they played, for example, I was told in Japan that they, that it's a almost sacred, ritualistic thing to eat a certain fish, and the whole point is that that fish is poisonous and there is a certain chance that you will die. But that's precisely, that's precisely uh, the point. So again, my point here is that, uh, that here it's another example of non-egotism. How? Publicity does not address you simply as an egotist, rational egotist, take care of your health and so on and so on. But beneath all this, there is a much stronger superego injunction. No? in the sense of you may die and that's why if you are a true man you will do it and so on and so on. So let me go on. What type of egotism are we then talking about today? Now I come to, I don't know if you know it, I don't think you do, but this is a story even more depressive than the one from Indonesia. I have a friend in China who sent me all the documents about this. It happened a couple of months ago in China. A story which in a strange way resembles one of the Bertolt Brecht's so-called learning plays. Brecht wrote in 2930 a learning play with the title The Exception and the Rule. It's a simple didactic communist play where a rich merchant and his poor servant are traversing a desert. Because of some storm, they almost run out of water, and then the merchant 
sorry, the servant approaches the merchant with a bottle offering him, because he's a good guy, a little bit of water that he still has. But the merchant thinks that the servant is trying to kill him and kills the servant. Then you have the court in session and the judge gives right to the merchant because the judge says, yes, probably this was an exceptionally good servant, but this is the exception. It would have been typical in such a situation for the servant to try to attack the master, so the master was right to react the way he did. Something even more horrible than this, it's not a joke, happened in China. It was, sorry, already half a decade ago. An elderly, in one of these anonymous, no, this was even not anonymous, in Nanjing, a friend sent me all the documentation. Uh, an elderly woman fell while getting uh, off a bus. She fell down when the door was open, and uh, a young, she was 65 years old, and she broke her hip. Uh, behind her on the bus, there was a young, decent guy, relatively wealthy, but decent. So when he saw, my God, woman there falling down, broken, he also stepped down, helped her, and when he saw that she, is, uh, she cannot walk, he called a taxi, took her to a hospital, and even gave her a little bit of money. Uh, a week later, after the woman got home, her relatives convinced her to prosecute the guy. The reasoning was what normal person would have helped a woman like that? No normal person. So the fact that he helped her means that he must have been responsible. He probably pushed her down. Okay, the thing got to the court, and the depressive thing is that the judge gave right to the woman. The judge said that, uh, that uh, uh, no normal person would have acted, I quote now literally the judgment, no normal person would be as kind as thank you this guy claimed he was. So since he was so kind, it's clear that he is guilty and he was punished quite a lot of money, a couple of tens of thousands of dollars in U.S. money, and so on, and so on. Uh, now, uh, what is happening here? I think the thing is much more complex than it may appear. It's not simply egotism or whatever. Chinese are basically good people. Something else is happening. Namely, this case caused quite a shock, of course, then in China, and even the official media the People's Daily made big opinion polls. They asked tens of thousands of young people between 20 and 35, what would you have done if you were to walk along the street and you would have to see somebody there bleeding, dying, or whatever? Would you have stopped and helped him or not? And the situation was made clear. It's not that there is a bad guy there beating the dying person, so that you can say, no, no, I'm afraid to, no, no. The guy is alone, you don't risk anything, the guy who is dying. The shock was that 87% of people said, no, I would not help. 
Then they specified their answer. They say, I would first look around if there is a CTV, that camera, no? If it is, then maybe I would have helped, if not, and so on and so on. So uh, I think that the uh, explanation of this, it's a, a very sad one, is that in today's capitalism, and this is not about China, uh, the limit between public and private space is shifting, changing. Uh, this friend of mine in China is a sociologist there, and he told me that his reading, and I tend to agree with it, is that more and more with the dissolution of old communal forums, even when we are formally at least in public, like on a square or where with hundreds of other people, even when we are there, we still experience ourselves as being in private. We ignore each other it's as if we are just different monarchs, each in our private space, passing by each other, but no public. You need something more, like the, the, the TV camera or whatever, to make it a public space proper. And I think the same goes even for sexuality. A friend of mine drew my attention to this because maybe if some of you read my work, you know that I was always intrigued by all the unwritten rules that control hardcore pornography. The reason this interests me is simply because you would have thought that, my God, hardcore pornography, what can be more free? You show everything. No, no, it's probably the most tightly controlled genre that you can imagine. If I may repeat my standard insight, uh, for example, in the old days, when it was still a story, usually, you cannot just show sex, you have some stupid story. Uh, did you notice how, as a rule, extremely, ridiculously stupid this story is? Like, I remember one from my youth, and even now I'm almost ashamed to think about it, you know? It's like a, a housewife is alone at home. A plumberer comes and says, Oh, lady, I finished it. I fixed that hole, leaking hole in the kitchen. And then the housewife said, but I have another hole to be fixed. Can you, I mean, you are just embarrassed, no? Then there was the next step. They told me so-called gonzo. Ah, my first reading here. I don't think they can be so stupid. I think that the whole point is that it is as if you have a kind of a choice. If the story, the narrative is serious enough that it engages you, you cannot see it all. If you see it all, full sex, then the story should be ridiculous. Like, and I think there is a negative proof of this. You know Catherine Briard, the French author who is trying to do both. That is to say, serious melodramas, to call it naively, with full hardcore. No wonder she is marginalized. It doesn't work. We really integrate this prohibition. And I think that what, so I was told, the predominant forum today, so-called gonzo, where you no longer have the pretense of a story, but actors directly address the cameraman, 
You know, you are all the time reminded that this is just stage for the camera. I think the censorship is here even stronger. As if, if you see it all, even a minimal emotional identification should be prohibited. But now, in the third stage, it's something which is, so I was told, I must admit it, I checked it up, and I'm paying the price. Because now, you know, I'm getting every day 10, at least 10, of those famous messages, guarantee in two weeks, three inches longer, and all that. Uh, but what I'm saying is that it's public sex. Interesting enough, I notice they are mostly from post-communist Eastern Europe, Hungary, and Czech Republic, mostly. And again, it confirms that thesis about the disappearance of public space. For example, I saw one or two Hungarian ones. And it's so depressing, it's not any glamorous uh, part of the city. It's not they don't do it like in a park or what, no. They take very depressive, like uh, usual morning streetcar, tramway or bus crowded with ordinary people, and then simply at a seat, a couple starts to, to make love fully, undressing themselves and so on. And you can see from the confused reactions that it's not staged. But what is so shocking is how, after the first moment of shock and so on, almost all people decided to ignore it, like it's their private <laughs> affair. And again, it confirms that thesis about the disappearance of public space. For example, I saw one or two Hungarian once. And it's so depressing, it's not any glamorous uh, part of the city. It's not, they don't do it like in a park or what, no. They take very depressive, like uh, usual morning streetcar, tramway or bus crowded with ordinary people, and then simply at the seat, a couple starts to, to make love fully, undressing themselves and so on. And you can see from the confused reactions that it's not staged. But what is so shocking is how, after the first moment of shock and so on, almost all people decided to ignore it, like it's their private <laughs> affair. They allow them their private space. So my conclusion from this is another sad one, is that in contrast to those who complain that because we are all the time controlled, filmed, observed through digital media, that privacy is disappearing. No, I think it's the exact opposite that is happening. Public life proper is disappearing. I think that all this culture of confession and so on, it's privacy invading public space. Uh, or this is, I think, also how Internet works. Because, you know, when you tell all your secrets, show your photos, whatever, masturbate uh, in front of your Skype, whatever, <laughs> you, the paradox is that you are still alone. You are still private. This is a kind of a shared privacy. You can be wired through all the world, but it's absolutely not the same as, you know, that proverbial exhibitionist gesture. That still addresses a uh, public space, the embarrassment. Here, it's privacy. That's so what does all this mean for, for 
sex. Ah, here I'm also a pessimist, not a total pessimist, I just note uh, tendencies. Uh, namely, what I see is uh, that uh, if once promiscuity was transgressive and the idea was that uh, passionate individual sex, love and so on is patriarchal, oppressive, I think that now, more and more, it's almost the opposite which is imposed as uh, the norm. What do I mean by this? Okay, let me begin with popular culture and then give you some theoretical examples. Did you see the last James Bond film? Not the new one, now Skyfall, shown, uh, uh, Quantum of Solace. Politically pretty progressive, I mean, basically, to cut a long story short, James Bond saves the Morales regime in Bolivia from some company which wants to control water. But did you notice something very strange about this film? It's the first James Bond where at the end there is no sex between Bond and Bond girl. They just embrace, we are too traumatized, okay. <laughs> now you will say this is an exception. I'm not so sure. Now I go to the really lowest of the lowest. Did you see some Dan Brown films or novels? Did you notice, for example, that already in uh, Da Vinci Code, you have a couple, Robert Langdon and the grand-grand-grand-grand-Sophie, <laughs> daughter of Christ, but there is no sex between the two of them. And I claim that we have here a kind of a strange displacement even Jesus Christ has to engage in love. You know, the thesis of the film, the secret, to cover up the fact that there is no sex here, you know. I think it's strictly correlative. You have sex up there, but not here. Uh, with angels and demons, it's even worse. There still is sex in the novel between Vittoria Vetra, the scientist, and the same Robert Langdon in the end. But did you notice in the film there is no sex? Where are we coming? Once we said Hollywood is adding sex to make the story more attractive, now Hollywood is uh, deleting sex and so on. I think this is again a very sad tendency. The tendency is that sex is effectively becoming less and less authentically intersubjective. It, it is more and more uh, solipsistic. I will tell you a story, maybe you know it, it was told to me by my good friend Alain Badiou, and then I checked it up in the States, you have the same phenomenon, namely, uh, in French and in English it works. You say, you use the word fall, you say tomber, fall, to fall in love. Okay, but you found a publicity of one dating and marriage agency in France, where basically the message was we will enable you to find yourself in love without the fall. Song tombe. And then I found an American agency who is doing the same. And I, I found this very sad because the idea is this one. With all the permissivity and so on, but you know what is love? Love is by definition a fall. If I exaggerate a little bit, love is, I walk on the street, quite accidentally, I stumble upon a person and, oh my God, 
All my ordinary life is ruined. Now I have a new focus. Everything changes. I mean, authentic love is very traumatic in this sense. Even passionate sex is traumatic in this sense. You are obsessed by it. Like, I want to have sex with that person even if I, even if whatever. And I claim that more and more this is becoming, this is experienced as too much. I claim the predominant ideology today is not marry and procreate. No, the, the predominant ideology today I claim is some kind of enlightened Western Buddhism, I call it. <laughs> Be authentically yourself, or as they say, the stupid Yodas in, in, uh, and so on in, in uh, Star Wars, uh, don't get too attached to worldly subjects, which means precisely don't fall. Don't get attached, keep distance. This is my eternal problem with otherwise my personal friend Judith Butler. I agree with her description, you know, sex, sorry, our sexual identity is not eternally, naturally given, it's performatively enacted through uh, rituals of repetition, ironic displacement. My problem is just why does she think that she is describing anything subversive? I claim she is just describing precisely the predominant ideology today. Now you will say, but what about neoconservative backlash? Ah, I claim it's exactly that, just a backlash, a reaction. The action is this one. We are interpolated into this safety. Safety in the sense of no fall, safe sex, or, you know my story, I always re repeat it, at all levels of consumerism, like uh, uh, beer, yes, but without alcohol, uh, 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 and w uh, whatever, uh, sweet, uh, uh, chocolate, yes, but without sugar, and so on and so on. To get, think, a uh, think, a product without this potentially dangerous dimension. And that's my problem with multiculturalism. Of course I am for other cultures, but that official multiculturalism and tolerance also wants the other without the fall, you know, the other who is like us, and then you idealize the other, which is for me the worst form of racism. Like I had the experience of my lifetime when I met a couple of years ago in Missoula, Montana, three or four so-called Native Americans. First, they protested about this term. I loved them. They said, we are Native Americans, so you are cultural, we are Native, or what? They, they told me, we much prefer be called Indians because at least our name is a monument to white man's stupidity then, you know. <laughs> they thought they are in India. They, they, in a very nice way, they immediately detect this, you know, they, they told me, they said so much when white guys come to them and said, you are wonderful, holistic, sensitive, and so on. No, with such proud, I love them. They told me, fuck you white people, we burned more forest, we killed more buffaloes than you ever will do, and so on. Because they got very well how false this celebration of, uh, you know, harmonious, holistic approach of them is, and so on, and so on. No, so, uh, uh, again, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, that's the paradox of our era, where uh, the more we talk about 
Tolerance, the more intolerant we are. And again, this is what bothers me in this obsession with harassment. Of course I'm against harassment when it's real harassment, my God. There are rapes, and I'm one of the few people that I know who is still for death penalty, and uh, I'm here radically for punishing them. Don't have any understanding for rapists. All I'm saying is that with harassment it can get more uh, problematic. As many intelligent, also feminist critics pointed out, that uh, those, if you go to the end in this logic of no harassment, basically you end up, as they say, consensual sex. Of course, I'm for consensual sex if it simply means no one is raped. We are both for it. But this consensual sex then all to a sudden be, turns into contractual sex. You know, as two rational people, we made a contract, you do this to me, I do this to you, and so on and so on. Okay, why not if you enjoy it? I have nothing against it. All I'm saying is that when you have authentic, passionate love, in the process of seduction, and not necessarily from the side of the man, you always necessarily have to do something, that crucial step, which retroactively, it de depends on the receiver, can be proclaimed to be a harassment. But this consensual sex then all to sudden be turns into contractual sex. You know, as two rational people, we made a contract, you do this to me, I do this to you, and so on and so on. Okay, why not if you enjoy it? I have nothing against it. All I'm saying is that when you have authentic, passionate love, in the process of seduction, and not necessarily from the side of the man, you always necessarily have to do something, that crucial step, which retroactively, it de depends on the receiver, can be proclaimed to be a harassment. Harassment means simply, in all brutality I show you, I display my desire. You know where you have a very nice scene, although they are pseudo-intellectuals, I don't like them, that guy in Aritu, the Director, did you see his, with Naomi Watts, Sean Penn, his nice movie, uh, 24 or 23, 24 grams? 21. Uh, don't, let's not go into Freudian water. What is <laughs> when uh, he, Sean Penn tells her, Naomi Watts, well, that he loves her. And her reaction is, do you know how brutal this is? How dare you tell me something like this? Do you know that you ruined my life and so on. In a way, she is right. This is love. Again, so quite often I claim what this fear of harassment covers is precisely a fear of effective intersubjectivity, proximity of the other, which is why I claim more and more the ideal, even if we have still 
real sex with real partners. The unwritten ideal is more and more sex with artificial plastic whatever props. Like I recently I found, you can Google it, just put in stamina training unit. I love it. I found this. It's a kind of a, it looks from outside as a large light so that you are not embarrassed. But then you open the top and it's an entry. Now comes the beauty. Which entry? Ah, you can get uh, plastic versions of vaginal entry, anal entry, mouth. You put it on, then you can regulate uh, the, the, the vibration, the tightness and so on. And uh, so I claim that where are we here? What are we approaching? Did you see the movie, which I think is a mega classic? The old, uh, now old, British uh, dystopia, Terry Gillian, Brazil. There is a wonderful scene towards the beginning when they, the rich people, with the hero of them, Jonathan Price, go to a restaurant and they have to select food and it's a stroke of a genius. What they get when they are served food is a plate. What is on the plate is just a, a sheet like, like, like just something like, like a piece of sheet, formless piece of mud, and then a photo of the, of the exquisite steak with all the... So the idea is you eat that sheet, but the photo tells you what... And I think that's how love more and more functions, you know. You just need some minimal prop, piece of shit, to masturbate with your fantasy. I claim that in this sense, even when we really make love, we more and more masturbate. We masturbate with a real partner. It's possible. Because, you know, in the same, just partner is here more and more just to do the work of your hand or whatever, but you are really, you remain with your fantasy. Now, to conclude, if I can conclude a little bit, uh, which there would be generally the ideology that would fit this situation? I claim, but I have deep, deep respect for Buddhism. Now I'm talking about our type of Western Buddhism. I claim it's the way this Oriental spirituality functions today. On the one hand, as already developed in some of my books, I claim that no wonder that the majority of top managers today do some type of oriental spirituality and so on. I think that to survive in a dynamic of today's capitalism, you simply go crazy if you fully identify with it. The only way to survive is to maintain a distance, to say it's just a crazy dance of appearances, I'm not really there, and so on and so on. On the other hand, uh, now I come to the interesting point. This is the most radical, maybe, aspect of the end of the world as we know it. And when I say the end of the world, I don't mean only in a bad sense. I'm just saying we are approaching a certain limit. Who knows what will come? Maybe a better world, maybe a bad world, uh, we, I think, should nonetheless take seriously the results of today's cognitivism and brain sciences, which, and I'm not interested here in the fact 
is it true or not? I have my doubts about it. But the point is that the point they are making, and it's taken seriously, is that, you know the result. We, first, we have no free will, and point two, soon it will be possible to directly link our brain to external machines. And the consequences can be quite radical here. For example, I met some scientists in Germany who together with American scientists, uh, they, even the Germans send me some videos. You know, for example, they already decoded the signals a rat is sending to its legs when it moves around. So I saw it on DVD, on DVD at least. What you can do is this. You have a rat in a cage. The rat is freely jumping around. Then you click a button, the rat is connected. And you can literally control the rat like a remote control car, left, right, and so on. Because again, through this link, you give signals to her neurons which are giving direction and so on. Now, uh, I spoke with these scientists, and of course, they are doing what I always suspected that they are doing. What they are really interested is to do this on a human being, and they are afraid to go with this into public, that there will be some ethical outcry, but they hinted at me that the result is the predictable one, namely what interests them in this. Let's say, now you will be the good guy, but you control me, no? Like, I walk here freely around, I don't know when you push the button, so that you control my neurons which give orders of turn left, right, forward. How will I experience this? And they told me that it looks that the paranoiac bad solution is the true one. That is to say, I will not even know that I am controlled. It will not be, oh my God, some foreign power took over. I will still continue to think that, that I freely roam around. And all that stuff then, you know, uh, this, how uh, you can move already objects with thoughts. And so on. Okay, my problem is to conclude the following one. How will we subjectivize this? If we will have to accept, at least the scientific ideology is telling us this, I don't think it's true, but nonetheless, that in this sense we are not free. There is no ego, there is no self which is autonomous, free, we are just the result of uh, complex neuronal mechanisms and so on and so on. There are, as far as I can see, four main attitudes here. The first one is the naive dualism. Most of the scientists think that it is true that we have no free will, but in our daily life, the way we are wired, constructed, is that we necessarily experience ourselves as having free will. So there will forever be a gap between scientific knowledge and how we experience ourselves. The second position, more radical, interesting, but I think illusory, is the one of more radical cognitivists like that California couple, Patricia and Paul Churchland, where they claim we can imagine our awareness to change according to the state of our knowledge. They say in the same way that once people thought they are obsessed by demons, 
But now, when you go crazy, we know it's not demons, it's just your madness. We can also imagine a society where people would communicate blah, 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 without their activity being sustained by the notions of free will, moral responsibility, and so on. You have this position. Then you have some other positions. I will not lose time. But the most interesting position for me here is the one developed by the German scientist Thomas Metzinger, who claims that although insofar as we remain in our ordinary state of mind, we cannot ever accept the result of cognitivism. Like, we can rationally know it, but you cannot really live it. You never treat yourself as if you are just a neuronal automaton. He says, accept Buddhism. If you reach the Buddhist enlightenment, where you accept anatman, you have no self, and so on, that Buddhist enlightenment is the only existential position which fits the result of modern science. Now, this, and now I will slowly finish, but I hope you got naively my message at a couple of levels from this sexuality, personal identity, moral responsibility, and so on. I just wanted to outline a certain zero level that we are approaching, where we will no longer experience ourselves as free, responsible beings, where, uh, again, all moral consideration will fall away, we will live in a kind of universalized uh, society of universalized uh, uh, privacy, shameless, and so on and so on, all that stuff. Uh, uh, I, I am not a pessimist in the sense that this is our fate. But I think that the only way to fight this fate, paradoxically, is to accept it as fate. I claim that what we have to do is precisely to paint a dark picture of where things move if we just let them to move spontaneously where they go. Uh, and this picture, again, it's interesting, because it's a society in which overcoming of morality and uh, total self-naturalization will coexist with some kind of a new, aseptic, totally non-sexual uh, spirituality. And it would be so interesting to compare here early Soviet communism with today's technological gnostics. You know all those crazy stories about how uh, uh, technology will bring us to some kind of collective identity where we will live eternally uh, uh, just downloading ourselves as a software program from one to another identity, all that. Uh, uh, do you know that all this was already dreamed throughout the 20s in the Soviet Union? Even Trotsky wrote something about it. The idea was that the true task of Bolsheviks is not only to change society, but to create a new man. And the predominant reading of this new man was, that's crucial, that he is asexual. Sexuality was, it was really a kind of a spiritual materialist gnosticism. The predominant attitude of Soviet psychologists 
in the 20s under the influence of Pavlov, although Pavlov was against Bolsheviks privately, but he was the key influence. It was that sexual arousal is the basic weakness of Homo sapiens, that it's unnatural. And it's incredible how what the most advanced dreamers of the Soviet Union in the 20s invented was something that you already find in St. Augustine on some Christians. Namely, St. Augustine, when he speaks about sexuality, he says, of course, of course there was sex in paradise. But it wasn't sex in this sense of arousal. Like, a man was able to get erection in the same totally controlled way in which you raise your hand to work on a field and so on. It was just pure instrumental activity. And then you maybe know, it's beautiful, what St. Augustine, the title of the work is De Nuptis et Concupiscentia. What he develops there, that sexuality is not the source of sin, but it's the punishment for the sin. He claims the original sin of man is that he wanted to be like God, master. But then God tells him, I will punish you, and I will punish you so that you will have a desire that you will not control so that you want to be the master of the world like me, haha, I will install a drive in you of which even in your, your own house you will not be the master. And then St. Augustine has a wonderful theory of erection, where he says that erection is the ultimate revenge on God towards to men. It is not the source of sin, but it's the punishment for the sin. He claims the original sin of man is that he wanted to be like God, master. But then God tells him, I will punish you, and I will punish you so that you will have a desire that you will not control, so that you want to be the master of the world like me, haha, I will install a drive in you of which even in your, your own house you will not be the master. And then St. Augustine has a wonderful theory of erection, where he says that Erection is the ultimate revenge on God towards to men. He says that I will take one of your organs, penis, and you will not control it. Like, you will want it to get up, ah, uh, it will not, or when it will be most embarrassing for you, uh, it will get up, and so on and so on. So the idea is precisely the non-controllable Status of erection is God's reminder of our finitude, like you dare to. So what I'm saying is that uh, the goal explicitly is to get out of this dimension. And here I think we should be very open. Through cloning, through all this, maybe sexuality will disappear. Sexuality as we know it which is not biological. The problem is what will remain of human sexuality the way we know it. Because again, human sexuality is not the same as we all know as natural sexuality. We can imagine a copulation which is totally mechanic and there is nothing sexual about it. Human sexuality is something totally different I try to develop it something, it's always linked to failure, repetition, and so on. In what sense? Let me imagine a, a very everyday obscene scene. Let's say I'm shaking a hand 
to one of you. Instead of dropping the hand, I go on squeezing it rhythmically. <laughs> Admit it, your association would be what dirty plans, what, like the situation would, you know, through just doing repeatedly what normally is done only once, the situation would go sexual in a very embarrassing way. So it's something much more mysterious that goes, so what will be the fate of that? So what's my point here? I'm sorry if it appeared that I'm be, uh, uh, painting some dark picture, whatever. No, I'm just saying that, and with this I really want to conclude. Do you know that what uh, Virginia Woolf, otherwise I must say I hate her. I think <laughs> she was a frigid bitch. I think that... that uh, that uh, Daphne du Maurier is greater writer than Virginia Woolf. I was almost lynched for saying this. But she did something wonderful. You know that in April in 24, in her essay, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown from 1924, she said that on or about April 910, human nature changed, and so on. It's a wonderful British style of this pseudo-empiricism, like the most famous statement in these lines is, you know, a theologist in mid-19th century claimed God created the world 4,000 and something years BC at nine in the morning and so on. You know. But what I'm saying is that with all the changes we are living now, it's not just the capitalist dynamic, it's, it's what biogenetic means, what all this stuff happening with our desires means and so on. I think that effectively the very basic dimension of what is to be human is changing. In this sense, I claim it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. It will change what does it mean to have sex, to be human and so on. But it's not still, I think, determinism in the sense of new catastrophe or whatever. The situation is open more than ever. And this is my concluding paradox. You know, it looks as if we can't really change anything. Even after September 11th, sorry, I mean uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street, even after that one, uh, no, because you know I'm a leftist here. You know, when you say September 11th, my association is always the putsch against Salvador Allende, you know. We should remember the true September 11. Organized, paid by the United States. You know that the smoking gun was found there. Kissinger signed a letter authorizing the murder of the Chilean minister. But what I'm saying is that, uh, uh, on the one hand, the situation may appear to be desperate. Like, my God, like... And it is desperate, in the sense that leftists were telling us for decades when our situation was relatively prosperous, you remember, they were telling us, ah, now we have apparent welfare, but wait a minute, there will be the crisis, blah, blah. Where the crisis is here, revolts and so on, and did the left propose anything I am not aware of, any viable plan, even general idea, you can maybe correct me here. 
I met demonstrators in, on Zuccotti uh, uh, Park, Frankfurt, and so on. And I was always asking them a simple, stupid question. What do you want? And I got answers like, we want a more just capitalism. It's, you know, it's, but, but I don't blame them. I think that the tragedy of our situation is the following one. And this should be, again, paradoxically, at the same time, the source of our hope. Namely, when people tell me, but do you think really that we can change anything? Well, my answer is, I don't know that. But I do know that things are already changing radically. That everything is changing so fast. That's some aspects I try to identify, discern today. In our economy, in our, uh, and it's not just capital, look, for example, again, look at today's capitalism. I think the whole digital phenomena and so on is much more ambiguous. It may be a triumph of capitalism, but you can see how at the same time, m the more we have this informational technology, the more private property itself becomes almost meaningless. I mean, soon everything will be downloading and so on and so on. It will not be possible to control it. So again, my point is this one. When people tell me nothing can be changed. No, it can because things are already changing like crazy. And what we should say is just this. If we let things change the way they are changing automatically, we are approaching a kind of a new perverse permissively authoritarian society, which will be authoritarian, but in a new way, which is why I don't like terms like new fascism and so on, you know. I mean, to use these terms means just you are too lazy to think what really is new. And this is what should give us a motivation to act. Things are already changing. Will we simply follow this change? So, so again, things are changing. I don't think that if we do nothing, we will simply go on enjoying our relative, at least in some parts of the world, prosperity. No, I think that, again, even my God, even Fukuyama himself, the last time I met him, confessed to me, he is an honest guy, I like honest conservatives, that, to put it in an ironic way, he is no longer a Fukuyamaist. He told me that with biogenetics, financial crisis, and so on, that his idea of the end of history is over. He admits it. Things are radically changing. And this is what should worry us. We should return the question to those in power. Because, you know what, so more and more my impression, if I look around the present state of economy, that, you know, my answer to the leftist paranoiacs who claim, ooh, there are some people, mysterious meetings somewhere between Washington and China and Wall Street deciding everything. I'm tempted to say I'm asking God, praying that it would at least be like that, but it's not. I really don't think we still have a ruling class which is able to rule properly. The situation is much more horrible. I don't think there is some big ruling class manipulating everything. They don't know what is happening. They themselves don't know what is happening. In Europe, where I come from, this is even more obvious than anywhere else.
So again, the very reason to worry should be already what motivates us to think what is happening, maybe to do something. I spoke for much too long, but haha, what can you do? You had to listen. No, thanks very much for your patience. Stop, stop. You know what's my usual joke? Wait till we communists take power, because then you will have to applaud for a long time to the, keep the, save the energy for them. Okay, so I think we have uh, about 15, 15 minutes for questions. Um, so I think there are microphones on the sides here, so. Uh, and I promise that I will try to be really short in my answers. So I think we have, we'll start over here on this side. Please. Thank you. Um, yeah, given your understanding of ideology that um, we're conscious of oppression, domination, and yet we go about our business like it, you know, like it's every other day. Yeah. How do you think we should approach, or how one could approach, the possibility of a post-capitalist future that is a, a communist future, uh, one that is not an abstract universal but a concrete reality? And I, I think you mentioned it implicitly, but I'm still looking for an answer. No, no, no. Uh, it's a very good question because, again, uh, from the idea that. Even if we know what we are doing, we are still doing it. My conclusion is not, what is the conclusion even of some of my leftist friends, and I disagree with them here. For example, they are not the same, but they share this. Fred Jameson and Noam Chomsky. They think that today the ruling ideology is so cynical that we no longer need the critique of ideology. Because in order to have a critique of ideology, you still have to have an ideology which at least takes itself seriously. No? That even if we know what we are doing, we are still doing it. My conclusion is not, what is the conclusion even of some of my leftist friends, and I disagree with them here. For example, they are not the same, but they share this. Fred Jameson and Noam Chomsky. They think that today the ruling ideology is so cynical that we no longer need the critique of ideology, because in order to have a critique of ideology, you still have to have an ideology which at least takes itself seriously, no? No, no, no. Uh, I claim that the lesson of what I'm saying when I develop this theory of cynicism is not, oh, all resistance is already included, we cannot do it. No, no, no. At the same time, the system is much more vulnerable than it may appear. We have many strategies here. First, maybe I didn't emphasize enough this. I don't believe in globalized cynicism. I claim that every cynic has a weak point. Nobody is totally a cynic. You know, even like, take Hitler. Yeah, he liked dogs, small children, you know. You may be ruthless murderer, but you have some private oasis, no, but here I'm a good, you know what I mean, like, uh, so that's one point. Second point, uh, uh, it is crucial that no ideology is consistent, like what I said at the beginning about that, how ideology always relies on unwritten rules, you have to transgress, uh, so there is uh, one of possible strategies 
would be the one which I practiced modestly when I was young against communist regime. It's to take the ruling ideology more seriously than it takes itself. In my country, it worked wonderfully because the system was so cynical that the communists in power, what they were really afraid was someone to take the official Yugoslav ideology seriously. Literally, it's so literally true. I remember two of my friends, it's an old story, I repeat it always. They had a job at the Central Committee of Slovene Communist Party. They lost their job because they really believed in the system. And this was considered as the first step towards, uh, you know, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, so again, uh, uh, there are, if anything, there are one way which opens up, again, is uh, naivety. I, I believe that in this totally cynical functioning, the system is incredibly open towards naive critique. Like, you simply naively demand something and you ignore all the cynical background and so on and so on. So what is more of a problem, if you ask me, for me, is Look, the only serious economic idea, I doubt how much serious it is that we have, because even today, look, ask Wall Street people and so on, majority, what they want. M the majority, I claim, has some kind of a vaguely Keynesian welfare state idea. We need to control banks, we need to spend more on education, blah, blah, blah. That's the basic idea. I doubt if it works. Then you have that dream of local communities, direct democracy, and so on. I claim this doesn't work. doesn't work in the sense of you cannot universalize it. I claim, on the contrary, to confront all the ecological problems and so on. The big task is to reinvent mega-large processes of collective decision, and so on. So, uh, so uh, the problem for me here is, are we really able to provide a global vision beyond capitalism? I mean, uh, you know, it sounds easy, but uh, like, like, in a way, okay, now I, will, I, am, I am still a communist, my God, but I will tell you something terribly cynical. You know, when people, I hate leftists who claim, yes, we know how things are, just the majority are stupid people entrapped in ideology. Well, if I were to be an ordinary guy, I doubt if I were to cast my vote for today's radical left. Because, like, as an ordinary person, you have the right, you know, I hate leftists, I know, I will not name them, but many high academic leftists who despise ordinary people, they just care for their children, money, and so on, where, my God, you know, it's easy for them, who some of them are even, what's the highest title called in U.S., university professors? Yeah, yeah, you know, but, my God, imagine yourself a modest worker who has two, three children, and so on, you worry, you here, I even understand, you know, when people were arrogant saying in Egypt, 
why didn't the majority follow? The majority worries about their survival and so on and so on. So again, uh, I see, but at the, then why am I still a communist? You know why? Because at the same time, I don't believe that things can go on the way they go on. Because my social democratic friends are telling me you should become more modest. Accept it, we remain within this space, just with local struggles, we try to make things better. I think that will not be enough. I really believe that the system is approaching a deep structural crisis. And I'm uh, not saying this will happen next year. It can drag on and so on, but I think uh, so many things are happening from ecology to new forms of poverty, hunger, chaos. For example, all this problem of immigrants, apartheid and so on. I think the message of this is very sad one. It's that, you know, the ideal of Marx was still that capitalism can afford what Marxists call formal freedom. We can all be legally free, but since you have, maybe, maybe not, a factory, I don't, I have to sell my labor force to you. I don't think capitalism can still afford as the universal level this freedom. I think we will get more and more first-class, second-class citizens, exclusions, and so on and so on. So, you know, the problem is not can we do it. The problem is that if we don't do it, then we are approaching a very dark, sad, new authoritarian, I don't know how to call it society, and already this is typical. How do we really know, for example, what is emerging now in China? This is what I would worry. For example, this, as I always repeat it, this new, poetically, we call it capitalism with Asian values. Of course, it has nothing to do with Asia. It has, but it's something else. It's a capitalism which is, at least it looks for now, more dynamic, productive, and also than our Western liberal capitalism, but it looks that it functions perfectly without democracy. This should worry us. You know, people were usually claiming democracy and capitalism go together. Yes, till now, let's be frank, it did appear this. But now, capitalism is obviously functioning better, much better, with, if there is a democracy, a tightly controlled democracy. So, why not? At some point, I was tempted, frankly. I visited recently Singapore, and uh, it's kind of a fascism with a human face, no? why not if that functions? But of course it's a dream, it doesn't work, because Singapore is an exception. A merchant state, you know what I mean, we all cannot become Singapore and so on. The problem is, the problem is, uh, when people say again that we are utopians, my answer is no, the utopia is that things can remain and go on indefinitely the way they are. We will have to invent something. Maybe we will not, but then it will really be a new authoritarian society and so on and so on. So I know I didn't answer your question, but who did? <laughs> okay, another thing. Look, the only creative idea that I know is the idea of what in Brazil they call renta basica, citizen's income. But are they afraid what this is? I read Van Paris, the, that Belgian uh, economist who invented it. 
This is precisely an attempt to reinstall welfare state capitalism. The idea is today's capitalism is so productive that while remaining within capitalism, society can afford to pay minimal wage for everyone. So it's, uh, it's in a way especially funny is if you try to account for citizens' income in the terms of Marxist theory of exploitation. Because then you have to say that what those partisans of citizen income propose is that the workers who will still be working should be even more exploited, that they should be paying capitalists, the state, and the unemployed, and so on and so on. I found this a pretty sad thing, that uh, more than ever, maybe, we cannot even realistically imagine a beyond of capitalism. Pundits and social theorists alike have labeled as hysterical. Yeah. Do you see any sort of radical political potential in this hysteria, and more specifically in the figure of the hysteric? And I ask this question um, as a kind of restaging of the way Lacan was a commentary of May 68th and the way he responded to the fundamental sort of shebu that the hysteric asked at that point. He, he, he responded, of course, they're, they're asking for a new master and they'll get one. It's a very good question, and the only problem is that to answer it fully, it's half uh, but very briefly. My first answer would have been to rehabilitate the term hysteria. Here I'm a good feminist. It's not a chance that psychoanalysis emerged through hysterical patients. You know, the ordinary vulgar theory is hysterics are weak women who just provoke a master, they don't know they want, the truly radical guys are perverts, you know. Hysterics just, even Freud once has this total misformulation where he says, a pervert guy does in reality what hysterics only dream about. But this is totally wrong. As Lacan puts it nicely, every power, the more brutal it is, the more it needs the pervert support. Perversion is not subversion. Perversion is always the obverse dark type of how power functions. And on the contrary, for Lacan, the true subversion is hysterical questioning. So in this sense, uh, okay, I mean it's a question of PR public relations, like it's but theoretically at least, I would say yes, we are hysterical and that's why we are truly subversive, you know. Because again, uh, the beauty of hysterical position is, uh, is uh, it's not just this kind of ambiguous provocation of the master, but it's a true questioning of the master, a much more radical questioning of the master than this pervert control and so on and so on. So that would be my first point. Second point, uh, uh, I think that uh, at this stage, as I've written about it, I wouldn't even worry too much. I didn't like this type of criticism I refer to it as clinching of Occupy Wall Street, you know, Bill Clinton did this and all those guys, like, okay, we sympathize with you guys, but you are just criticizing, come with concrete proposals and so on and so on. No, we have to think through this, to if they tell us, come
comply with realistic proposals. Sorry, but the only realistic proposals are by definition proposals now which are part of the system. If you make realistic proposals now, it automatically means you just pack things up with, I don't know, better legislation here, better taxation there. But I think the crisis is deeper, which is why, again, I even advocated in one of the short things I did apropos uh, Wall Street, advocated that what the last thing we need now is a dialogue. We should be left alone to think. There is, I'm not saying there is an easy way out, but, uh, you know, solutions at the same time, I think, I like to use here what my friends like what you call materialist theology of grace, you know. You work and solutions often come by themselves. Remember that all great revolutions happened by this. October Revolution was a total surprise. Marx was surprised by Paris Commune and so on and so on. So then you see value in the sort of empty signifier that the history... Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the greatest danger is to accept this blackmail of do something useful, translate your dreams into concrete proposals or whatever. No, that would be the greatest threat today. This doesn't mean that we should not fight concrete battles. Of course. For example, the example that I like to use. So many people are disappointed. I'm also I'm not an idiot by Obama. But I still insist that the debate that he unleashed, that set in motion about universal health care was an incredibly important debate because it did strike the key element of American ideology, this false idea of freedom of choice and so because you know this was the truly efficient conservative counter argument. Universal health care deprives you of the freedom of choice. We should accept, we should move the debate there. What kind of freedom of choice is there? Is it really freedom that you get there? And so on and so on. So again, uh, this would be the art today. Yes, to engage in concrete battles here, there. But nonetheless to maintain the space open for thinking. Not don't be hystericized by the opponent. We have enough of our own hysteria, I could put it this way, you know? Like, oh, where are the concrete answers, and so on and so on. And my answer to those in power, on the other hand, would have been, wait a minute, you don't know what you are doing. I mean, what I said before, and it's a very dangerous, potentially, situation, I really mean it that, look at United States. Sorry, but, you know, once, the Republican Party was the party of this Rockefeller, rich elite, and so on. This was horrible. But at least, now I will sound, now I will sound horribly cynical, but what the hell. At least you have some trust, these are rich guys with certain sense of... But how can you take seriously a party where people like Michelle Bachmann and Rich Santorum come close to ruling positions? I really mean it, that like it's as if the ruling class itself no longer functions, is no longer able to rule properly. And this is potentially a dangerous situation. Haha, <laughs> I should see that. <laughs> then I will be able to say hypocritically, I'm so sorry that we can stay all the night. <laughs> Please. Ah, the struggle of two ladies. <laughs> the green lady and the grey lady. <laughs>
<laughs> um, I'm a little bit concerned that, um, you know, that while the ruling class is trying to sort it out, and while we're deferring to other people and saying, yeah, yeah. oh, someone else will solve yeah. all these problems. No, I didn't say this, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. How, how are we actually going to pull ourselves together and, like, ourselves solve uh, the problems of today's society when even somebody who's politically active and aware is ready to defer to other people and say, well, somebody's probably sorting this out. Uh, I don't have to take personal responsibility. And um, do, don't you think that, that the negligence that I myself will take blame for <laughs> um, might result in some catastrophe um, and how can we possibly avoid that? No, it's a very good question, but here let me tell you my pessimism. Even Trotsky, the permanent revolution, somewhere considered this point. You know, like, here I'm a brutal realist. You have to accept it that this will sound horrible, that most that you will get from the majority of people, and majority of people is not now the code name for the lower classes, it's more even the upper, that they want normal peace and work. They are not ready to be permanently engaged. It's easy to have the magic moment of revolution where millions participate. But for me, the greatest problem was always the day after. How is all that one, like Tatrio Square, Egypt? Okay, we all cried, it's wonderful. But then when things return to normal, how, how you will feel the difference there? That's, you know, like, what I would like is a little bit less focus on this magic, ma you know what's my nightmare? That we do another Tahrir Square or Occupy Wall Street, and then every year we meet in a cafeteria and talk how nice it was, and then while we talk, my cell phone rings, oh, I have to run to my bank, you know, sorry, I don't have time. You know, that it will become just this nice memory, and so on, and so on. You know, and but uh, unfortunately here, uh, I don't think there is a simple answer. It's already a tragic symptom that we are asking this question. I mean, uh, and this is the problem. I mean, I'm always challenging people who shout at me, "Oh, you're a traitor revisionist." Then I tell them, "Okay." Tell me what to do. They tell me people should take over. Okay, I'll tell them what do I mean by this. Through voting, through coup d'etat, revolution, whatever. Or, and you see that vaguely, like for example, I had a debate in Zagreb, Croatia, with Tariq Ali, who said it should have happened in Greece, that maybe not in Athens, but in another city, people should take over immediately take over the town hall, distribute money. I told them, are you crazy? First distribute what money? Money is no longer the real money you have there. It's all mostly virtual. You, you know what I mean? Like, I'm shocked about uh, how... So, uh, what I'm saying... Now, here you will probably not agree. That's my hardline message, is... We have to reinvent state authority and so on and so on. Are we aware? And this was what I talked amply with Tsipras, the Greek guy who just lost. No? I told him, don't think about democracy, think about secret police. 
think about oppression. Because I don't think this. Let's say that by a chance, uh, Syriza were to win in Greece. I told him, are you aware that without extremely efficient financial and other police, you wouldn't have stood not even a chance? Because the first thing that would have happened would that you know, all the capital flight out and so on. Then they tell me, ah, it's, you are a Stalinist, you have your Stalinist dreams. I tell them, no, but if we don't do this, the real Stalinism will, will return. Like, I distrust this old leftist dream of transparent society, no state, and so on and so on. Okay, we can call it state or not, but we have to start to seriously think how to organize security, state apparatus, and so on in a different way. This is the crucial question. Maybe even more crucial question immediately than capitalism itself. Because, you know, the problem today is precisely the complexity of social organization, where you cannot play with all these transparent local communities, no? Like, then they always tell me, what about Zapatista in Mexico? Oh, I love them, because they are cynically realist, like, you know? They very well organize the progressive tourism, no? You come to their liberated region, no? But I spoke with one of them and they told me, and this is not cynical, what I will tell you now, that's why I admire them. There is a problem, namely in the Zapatista territory, there is no prostitution and no alcohol. But of course, all the leftist professors who come there want both. So they organize every evening a bus just outside, where you have a bordel, a tequila, and so on, and so on. I mean, it, I, uh, I'm sick and tired of this big enthusiastic moment where we all cry together there. I'm more and more in love with this difficult, concrete, boring world, how you really change daily life. And here, I don't think the situation is as hopeless as it may, as it may appear. But I know I didn't answer you, and I'm not bluffing, you know. <laughs> Yes, please. No, that the lady, leave both ladies, yeah. Like two of those uh, knights of the round table, the, the green lady and the great lady, grey lady, I don't know who is the good one, or sorry. We're both, we're both pretty good. Yeah. But, Zizek, okay, first of all, I'm very happy that you mentioned Buddhism. But, when you, okay, strike, I see already... Bud you. Buddhism, so, the fact that um, people can, in their individual selves, overcome um, ideological constraints in themselves. But the point that I wanted to raise was that we have uh, a, a movement um, like getting back to the land, but not perhaps what that means typically. I don't know if you've heard of permaculture before. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, no, so I'm yes. just wondering. There but first, I'm not for Buddhism there. I'm very critical of Buddhism, but it's another story, okay. But, you know, there's all aspects to to all things yeah. that you can be critical of or not critical of. Yeah. But anyway, so um, yeah, so with permaculture, I guess the idea is that people are working towards sustainability, working with the land, uh, and living in community at the same time and attempting to create um, what I would loosely call a communist sort of um, society, but on a small scale. And that, that's happening all around the world in little pockets. And I feel like that, 
you know, it's a matter of... Can you specify these pockets? Where do you see them, for example? For example, in India and China. I'm not aware of any of this type of pockets. Yeah, there, there are definitely communities of people living off the land and actually living in community as well. Um, if you go on the Woofing website, you can find them. <laughs> but anyway... Um, the thing is, what I think is important is that we get back to producing culture and becoming producers instead of consumers. Um, I think one of the most important things to like get to getting in touch with um, our sense of change and what we can do is actually making things and creating what what we want. And I don't mean like manifesting our reality yeah, necessarily, yeah, yeah. but just actually engaging in things that that we consume on a production level, which I think is a Marxist principle. Yeah, but nonetheless, you know what's my problem here? I see what you are talking about. No, because what I meant is that, because it may surprise you, but I know the situation in India pretty well. Uh, You have there a big movement, which is more or less totally ignored by our media. It's the Naxalit Communist Maoist Rebellion. It's the greatest rebellion today there are over or at least around one million armed people which are suppressed by the army in an incredibly brutal way. And it's simply, it's incredible how it's simply uh, ignored by the media and so on, no? It's absolutely breathtaking what's happening there. Okay, but to go back to your point, you know what's my problem? Okay, but what you are saying, I would have said... It may appear a theoretical problem, but I think it's also very practical. Like, most of these local communal communities, so I call them, do you think they have, they have a universal potential in the sense that these are the germs of something that it will... I claim that no, that something else, not their own logic, will have to come to provide the proper background for them. Because the first thing, as you probably know, is that they are not something new. You have, especially in the United States and in Canada here, you know, you have for already over 150 years this. They are all the time here, these small communities and so on and so on. But what makes me a pessimist is this. For example, I have, maybe you have their better connections. I have friends in Venezuela who all the time keep me informed. And they are getting pretty pessimist. You know, from time to time you get this triumphant news, oh, workers took over that factory and it's in the media. And I have a leftist, leftist friend there, who does something very evil. He goes there to this same factory a year after. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's either bankrupt or... Uh, taken over by the state or reprivatized or whatever, whatever. So uh, what I'm saying is that, uh, uh, for example, I had the same problem in Greece where they constituted these small communities and so on and so on. And then I asked them, okay, imagine you taking power. Yes, they told me with such pride in Greece. They told me, we have a totally new form of society. We gather. And each of us can speak, but it's allowed to speak no longer than five minutes, so that they are all equal. Then I told them, okay, imagine Syriza wins, and imagine capitalists boycotting you, 
fleeing the country, blah, blah, blah. What will you do? Convoke a great meeting when each of you will talk for five minutes or what? No, you will need an extremely brutally efficient force. This is what I would like to think. How to do it without simply... You know what I mean? Like, I totally agree with you. I admire these communities. But what kind of a global network can we imagine? I don't think they will do it. Here, I may be a little bit more pessimist than you. I, I think it's just interesting to question why we need money if we can produce things ourselves. And I think the question comes down to land. What do you mean if we produce the things myself? Where did you buy your watch? Where did you buy your PC? What do you produce yourself? No, I mean, what do we really need? I think Gandhi was a really wonderful example of, of that. Not that I'm a Gandhi is my problem. You know that. They, you know, you should visit India. This was the discovery of my lifetime there. I visit the untouchables. You cannot imagine how they hate Gandhi. Gandhi is strictly upper and upper middle class phenomenon. The untouchables never forgave Gandhi the way he approached the topic of the castes. It was, to put it brutally, the proto-fascist solution. Gandhi's solution was not abolish castes, but each caste has its proper place. Each caste has its own dignity. They should all be celebrated, blah, blah, blah. And then the good guy for me is an untouchable called Ambedkar, who is now more and more elevated in India. As more, He proposed, I quote it somewhere, a wonderful formula. No caste without outcasts, you know, like, you never will, based on caste principle, construct a harmonious... So, again, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, precisely Gandhi, although I agree with you, you know, which is for me where he did one... First, oh no, let me be very clear. I do admire, nonetheless, Gandhi. He was an extremely honest person. He was far from saying, did you read his book, Experiments with Truth, or what? Well, he's not faking. He reports he was no saint. How he was all the time troubled with sexuality. And how he made all these stupid experiments. He was paying young girls to sleep with him, but promised to himself that he will not touch them and so on. You know this. I, it is comical, but at the same time, it shows his absolute honesty. He wasn't saying, I'm a saint or what, you know. Uh, and uh, all that I... And yes... An uh, Indian friend sent me a wonderful text by Gandhi. How can we do our own secret police? Which is a wonderful text, or like, we need it, but can we avoid all the horrible things that we... That Gandhi I would like to follow, you know. <laughs> no, no, again, I agree with you, but, you know, maybe there is one solution. Maybe I'm too utopian. What I do admire is how these local communities often succeed in directly, through digital media, become universalized, you know. What interests me is how maybe this is one of the ways to overcome this limit of local communities, that you don't define them in this old-fashioned way and so on. 
But you can, to combine them then with the, the, the most modern technology and so on and so on, which can change everything and so on and so on. I would have, but you know, the only, because the only problem is, now when you, you said, we, the other problem is what you said, uh, things that we need, things that we don't need. I am well aware that desires are basically perverse. We mostly buy things we don't need and so on and so on. But on the other hand, like, how would you establish through pedagogy or what? How would you establish, how would you bring people to, to demand only what they really need? I don't know if we can do it on a, on a universal level. It's, it's like, it's, what? Yeah, I mean, I'm Something a totalitarian here. I'm sorry, you see, you see, you always get a... But uh, we're, we're out of time, I'm afraid, so uh, let's uh, thank so much. Oh my God, okay. Not my I'm sorry, but uh, no, because again, these are naive questions, but naive questions are the most difficult ones, and the crucial ones, of course. Of course. No, I claim the answer is a simple one there where you say, because it's not some psychological propensity in ourselves. It's the whole market capitalist system which makes us do this. So the first thing I hope we agree is, let's not approach this way, how we demand only what we really want as an individual psychological problem. And then you get all this psychological, no. The, change the system and people will desire in a different way. Don't focus on people and terrorize them, you know. Because do you know that there is also a very racist way of playing this game? Like, in, when I was in, uh, in New Zealand, I met some natives there. I love them. The most corrupted, but in an honest way, people. New Zealand. They have their authentic popular artists who prolong authentic tribal art. But you know how? They told them. They have an agent in New York who tells them what's the latest fashion. Then they quickly discover authentic art, which magically, and I love them, you know, because, and what they say, they're furious when somebody says them, you live authentically, why do you want to become consumerist? And they tell you quite frankly, why don't you become and live like us and we become consumerists like you? Let's think. You know what I mean? Like, I, uh, uh, I despise this liberal false admiration of so-called primitive people. I will never, just this then you are allowed to go, I will never forget what I learned from South Africa the last years of apartheid. A friend from there sent me the official white apartheid justification. It wasn't blacks are less. It was what? It was saying, if we abolish apartheid and give blacks the same rights, are we aware that an incredibly rich, authentic culture will get lost in our consumerist society? There will no longer be Bushmans or whatever. There will just be all the same consumerists and so on and so on. I never forgot this, that the last defense of apartheid in South Africa was authentic black values. Which is why, I know you're too young to remember this, but Mandela was always for citizens' equality. 
The one who was for separate way we need our black culture was King Buteleshi on a minority. And as it became clear later, he was on the payroll on, of, of the white and so on. Okay, sorry. <laughs>